Hello again. In this uh, podcast, what I want to talk about are really the realities, I guess, of uh, photographing wildlife in terms of the kind of things you need to expect and what you need to know before you do it. So if you're perhaps thinking about doing some wildlife photography, and it may be you've organized a trip now that we can travel again, and um, you're going somewhere you've never been before. I just thought I'd run through a few points that um, really are part and parcel of doing really any wildlife photography, unless you're very, very lucky. So there's a few points here, so I'm just going to dive in and um, talk about each one in terms. So the first one is finding subjects. So uh, when I used to photograph humpback whales, um, I used to like sharing pictures, I mean, typically breaches and things like that. Um, but one point I had to make to people is that it wasn't a case of just jumping in a boat, heading out to sea and watching whales breaching all over the place. Uh, I might see whales breaching maybe every third trip. Um, and some trips, I wouldn't find any whales at all. So finding subjects is not always as easy <laughs> as you might expect. So the best thing to do, particularly if you're somewhere we've never been before, is make sure you've got a good guide with you who understands the animals, knows the area, and knows the best places to go and look for them. So um, at sea, uh, with, with things like humpback whales, it, it's certain times of year, certain weather, you know you're going to have a better chance of seeing them than other times. There's a whole bunch of factors. If you're on land, it would be a guide who knows how to track, knows how to re read the spore, the language of what's going on in the area. So all of these things are very important. And the best thing you can do is to make sure you've got a good guide to help you. Now, the next point about it is to be patient. As I've said, when I was photographing whales, sometimes I might be out for three hours and I wouldn't see a single whale. And, and that's, that didn't happen all the time, but it certainly happened enough for it to be a, a, not an unusual <laughs> situation. It, 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 it's kind of happened less often than seeing something, although sometimes all I would see is the back of a whale swimming. So that was pretty uninteresting. Um, but the thing is, you have to be patient. If you're um, seeing animals in, say, Africa or somewhere like that, uh, sometimes they might cover quite a large range you might have um, if, let's say you're looking at predators they may be um, the only predator in quite a large area and they will be moving around their area so you might just get very unlucky and not be there i've known of people who've gone to tiger um, reserves or national parks in india and been there for a few days and not seen a single tiger so it's really important to be patient now Another one to think about is weather. So you need, really need to be ready for whatever weather conditions you might come across. So it might be hot or cold, wet or dry. The thing is to always have the right clothing. So um, for example, on a whale watching boat or even on a quite a sunny day, it can be quite cold out at sea when you're, um, when you're, when the boat's going quite fast. Also you're exposed to the sun. And I found that my skin would dry out very quickly on a boat and then I'd burn very quickly. So it was always a case of I'd have layers on. Uh, I might have a spray jacket over the top. I'd always have sunscreen on, a factor 50s to, to just protect my uh, skin from the sun. Um, I remember in India, we would go out pretty early in the morning. So we'd be leaving at about 6 a.m. and it'd be very cold where we were. So I'd be, again, wrapped up in as many layers as possible. And then 
there's nothing wrong with stripping a layer or two off as, as things get worn, but you want, really want to be as comfortable as possible and even make sure you've got a drink or something to snack on it, depending on where you're going and um, how, how far it will, how far away you are from the next meal. Shooting in bad light is another thing to be aware of because a lot of animals, now I'm talking more land animals, uh, they will tend to stick in the shadows because they're harder to see, for one thing. So again, if we're looking at predators, uh, they will try and creep up on their prey. And um, that means they're going to be somewhere where they're not particularly obvious, usually. So I, again, with um, the tigers in India, we were in forest uh, or jungle, depending on your, your take, um, in strong sunlight, but the, the sun was coming between trees. So you'd have sort of bands of bright light and then very dark light. So you're constantly working. You're working in light conditions that are changing quite often. And sometimes it's quite bad. So you might be compensating with aperture. You might be compensating with ISO. But this is where post-processing becomes an important part of it. And I'm going to talk about that. Um, later but just be aware that often you're not going to be shooting in an ideal lighting situation you're not in a studio so you've got to be able to work with whatever you're given now another thing to be aware of is, is just the gear you're using because I know some people get a bit intimidated when they see somebody else turn up with um, you know a huge lens that they can barely hold um, look some people buy big lenses because that's what they like. I mean, if you're shooting birds, for example, something like 600mm is ideal, but you really have to have a tripod, something like that. Um, my go-to lens is a, a Canon 100-400, and the reason for that is that it gives me quite a good zoom range, and if I couple that with the Canon EOS 5DS that I've got, I've got a, um, a full-frame sensor, so my raw image is 50 megs, so it's a 50 meg sensor, so I get I got a big image to start with. And that combination gives me a reasonable chance of getting quite a good shot in terms of getting in close to what I'm photographing, but it's also practical to use because uh, for whale watching, I would be on a boat. You can't use a tripod on a boat that's moving. It just doesn't work. I've seen people trying to do it. It doesn't work. You've got to be hand-holding. So you need to ask yourself what's the best combination you can come up with that you can handhold and still get good results remembering the um the, you know the minimum shutter speed rule about one over focal length for example um if you think about that then if you've got a 400 mil you you need to be shooting no slower than one four hundredth of a second and if you're on a moving boat you need to be a lot faster than that to get good sharp images so don't worry too much if you feel a little bit um, ill-equipped, let's say, uh, if you turn up at something and people are walking around with big lenses. They, who knows how good they are at using them? And the bottom line is your camera is a tool, your equipment is a tool. The most important part of the toolkit is, to use an old phrase, the 12 inches behind the viewfinder. So if you really know your camera and you understand exposure triangle, you understand how to get the most from it, then that's all you can do. And you're likely to get results that are at least as good as anybody else and probably in many cases much better than they're able to do, even with um, this sort of really flashy kit. So 
buy the appropriate gear for what you want to um, what you want to shoot. Okay, another problem that you might find is that you just can't get close enough. Um, in the previous podcast, I spoke about the ethics of wildlife photography. And one of the things I spoke about was not getting in too close. Really, when you're shooting wildlife, you're trying to shoot wildlife in its natural environment, doing natural things. They're not going to be doing nat- natural things if you're really close to them. So the chances are that you're going to have to shoot from a, a distance away, further away than you would ideally like. And this again comes back to the kit you're using. Have a good zoom lens, good telephoto lens. I like a zoom because it gives me choice, but a fixed telephoto might be your thing. And I, as I say, that I mentioned previously, I use a full frame camera to give give myself the biggest captured image that I can, and then I can work from that. Okay, another note (laughs) is um, don't be a perfectionist. thing about wildlife photography is that you may well have ideas of what you can shoot or certain shots in mind but speaking from experience they're probably the shots you're not going to get um more importantly you need to be open to whatever comes along whatever um photographs if you like offer themselves so have i like to have a rough plan in my head when i'm out shooting something but Really, the animal's in control. I can't pose them. It's not like a studio shoot with a model. Uh, The animal's going to do what it's going to do. It may not even show up. So all you can do as a photographer is work with what what you're given. So by all means, have a look around and see uh, what you can make, what opportunities present themselves in terms of um, backgrounds, um, angles of view. You might be able to change your angle, get high, get low, those sorts of things but you may well find your options are limited. Now, I remember um, in Zimbabwe, we we were tracking, um, actually tracking rhino, and we found them. We couldn't get very close to them. And obviously, rhino are quite dangerous because they're very short-sighted, and um, they'll tend to attack things. So basically, we found these rhino. We were at that stage downwind of them, but the wind began to change. So I kind of moved my position as much as I dared, to get the best shot I could, but in the end I had to kind of back off because the wind was starting to turn and I didn't want the rhino to know that I was there because if they found me, then um, they would probably be quite crossed and things probably wouldn't have ended very well, at least for me. So try and be a bit imaginative, creative with what you've got, but don't be a perfectionist. You can work with things in post-processing uh, which is an important part of this kind of photography, and that might help you get get you closer, but you need to have something to work with in the first place. So rather than getting too focused on expectations, just be open to whatever comes along and um, take those shots. Now, I'm going to talk about post-processing right now. I know some people still have an issue with it. Is it ethical to post-process an image? Well, I guess... Really depends what you're intending to do. If you're trying to present a good representation of what you saw, then I would say there's nothing wrong with that. If your intention is to deceive or manipulate or anything else which is unethical, then sure, there's an ethical issue with that. So the first place to start with is the ethical is what are your motives? What are your motives? Why are you post-processing the image? Now, I will typically 
vary exposure and contrast on the images. I'll probably recrop them um, just to get a nicer composition because sometimes you have to shoot things very quickly. So for example, um, a humpback whale breaching, it's pretty much over in two, in two seconds. So to get that shot, you, you're probably moving, you're probably turning the camera onto the whale anyway, because it's, uh, I've occasionally, I've got it right and I've watched the whale breach through the viewfinder, but more often than not, they breached off to one side or the other. So I've got to turn the camera onto them, position, get them in the viewfinder and take the shot. So you don't have any time to compose the image. That's all done in post-processing. Um, so look, post-processing is where you, if you like, put the finishing touches, just um, get the composition right, get the exposure correct, maybe bring out some of the colors. Um, one of the guides that I use for land animals, at least, uh, when I'm working on color, because uh, I'm not into oversaturating. I don't particularly like that. I know some photographers do oversaturate their images. I see it quite a lot. I tend to use grass as uh, a reference point. So I'll change the um, intensity of the the bright, uh, sorry, the, the grass, how, how green it is until it looks natural and then use that as a key, as a reference for every other, everything else there. So um, lions, for example, is slightly orange, sort of orangey brown in their color. Um, but if you go crazy, they can they can look bright orange, and obviously that's not the um, a natural kind of look. In fact, they look very much like uh, termite mounds. I noticed in, in um, South Africa when I was photographing them there because I mistook a, a lion for a termite mound on one occasion. So there you go. That um, uh, you know we don't always get it right every time. Okay, another thing to think about is just the angle. So I've mentioned that you can't always compose the shot very well, but you've always got some option on angle. You may not have many options on the angle that you're shooting from. Uh, I like to get down low where I can. Uh, but again, when you're picking an angle, if you're working with an animal like a lion, for example, or a tiger or something like that, the first thing you've got to think of is your own safety and the people who are with you. So I will hang out of the car a little bit, but you're not supposed to. So I would recommend you don't do that. Um, if you're on a boat, you know, always be conscious of looking after yourself so that when you shoot, uh, when you shoot, I have, I like two hands on the camera, but the boat's often moving. So um, I'll try and wedge myself somewhere so I don't fall over. I don't drop my gear. I don't damage my gear and I don't damage me or anybody else near me. So whatever you're doing, do be conscious of the safety aspects and don't do anything that would jeopardize your own safety or anyone around you. Or if you're photographing wildlife, you don't, you don't want to put them in at any risk either. You don't want to do anything to uh, risk the safety of the animal that you're photographing because after all, you're there to photograph it doing its thing and not to, um, uh, you know, scare it or do anything like that. Okay, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about time again and just um, the amount of time. If you are going somewhere remote, and I've already spoken about people going to India and spending a few days there and not seeing anything, it is, if you can, allow as much time as you can to, you know, maybe get the shot that you want. Um, I tend to stay in the same place. I know some people go from park to park in India might spend two or three days in each one. Um, 
that might work for you, but and it also depends how good your guides are. But generally, um, what the guides will tend to do in something like a, a park, they'll talk to one another. So they'll share where they have sightings. When I was at Karna, we were on a rotation on which parts of the park we were in on each trip into the parks. We would do two trips a day, except for Wednesdays. So the park's closed on Wednesday afternoon to give the animals and everybody else a rest. Um, so you might get unlucky and be in the wrong parts of the park just on the wrong time. So the more time you're able to spend there, the better your chances are of having at least one encounter. So out of, I think it was 15, can't remember how many trips I made in that. It was either 13 or 15. I think seven of them we sighted tigers. Now I was able to get photographs on most of them, but there was probably only two encounters where I got pictures I was really pleased with. So that's the kind of ratio to think about. You know, if you can allow a week, and um, that'll give you plenty of time. But sometimes it's much, it's, it's much easier. It depends on the environment you're in. With the tigers, we were in forests, so it's very, very easy for them to disappear. They'll disappear very, very quickly. In fact, they can be sat right at the side of the road, and you wouldn't even notice them there. So, whereas if you're in open savanna, uh, let's say you're in the Serengeti, somewhere like that, um, generally your chances of finding something are much better because there are fewer hiding places, although long grass can hide quite a lot. So anyway, you know, it's something to think about, something to consider when you're planning your trip. And then the final thing is just motivation when you're not taking photographs. So unless you're very lucky, <laughs> most of us, so I include myself in this, I don't really get much chance to shoot wildlife, or at least not the more exotic wildlife that I like to shoot. So there are a few things you can do. So one thing is to just shoot whatever's around you. So I live in, um, I guess, semi-rural France. So we've got things like, um, well, there's lots of birds, but there's little lizards around. There's some red squirrels about. Um, I'll just photograph whatever's around and, and see what I can find, or even insects, butterflies, things like that, just to get my hand in, to get ideas. Another thing I'll do is look at places uh, like Instagram or Facebook and look at other people's work because quite often... Uh, they'll come up with some great ideas and I, I might copy them because, you know, we all copy everything in the end. And it might give me some ideas as alternative um, photographs I can get, alternative poses, if you like, if things aren't quite going according to plan with the animal that I'm, I'm working with or I haven't got the angle that I'd normally like. It might give me, you know, there might be something slightly abstract I could do or some other thing. So it really depends on what you're interested in and how much you're prepared to experiment but it is a great place to um, get some ideas so I'm just going to finish with a quote that I used on the last podcast but I do like it I think it's really really important when it comes to wildlife particularly uh, in the, the situation we are these days with um, um, a lot of them being endangered and it's just that whenever you go wherever you go take nothing but photographs leave nothing but footprints and kill nothing but time so I hope you've enjoyed this and um, good luck with your photography. I'll speak to you next time. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. 
Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for with my podcast, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 